0: Hello everyone, Roberto here with a brand new announcement! I will once again be participating at the Intelligent Speech Conference this year on November 4th from 10am to 6pm EST, and we will be presenting on a topic within the Soviet sphere. Now, I know you're probably chomping at the bit about the topic of choice, but I've decided to keep this tender piece of information to myself because, guess what, I don't want Brendan finding out about it, it's a secret. So prepare yourself for dinner, because long pork is on the menu. If you go to intelligentspeechonline.com, which is also found in our episode description, and use our coupon code when you go check out, you get a 10% discount. So that is intelligentspeechonline.com. The code is, you guessed it, Czar, which is spelled T-S-A-R. And for those on the Georgia podcast... I tried getting Georgia, but Tsar is what stuck, so T-S-A-R. I know, I know, it should be Mepe, but it is Tsar, T-S-A-R.
1: I'm Roberto and I'm Brendan and this week I'm in charge well not this week this is just one patreon episode I'm pretty sure nevertheless come to liberate the audience from their capitalist overlord Roberto because for once I'm going to be doing the talking and Roberto is going to be doing the reacting
0: I don't get how this works but okay
1: okay well you don't have to know how it works you just have to follow along Sounds great to me. In English, that is, why would I plow when I have a balalaika? It's a Russian peasant proverb, and it is also the subject of this week. Plowing? Uh, the balalaika. I thought it was plowing. Oh, right. Sorry. It's why would I plow when I have balalaika? Because that does speak to the fact that this is a Russian folk instrument that the people who do the plowing do the playing. Not concurrently, as the proverb implies. So anyway, to start things off, I get the feeling that maybe some Russian listeners might roll their eyes at the mention of the balalaika, because in the West the balalaika is a very stereotypical Russian instrument. It's it's thought of as quintessentially Russian. So I think a friend of a mutual friend of ours mentioned there was this band. It was like Surf Ninjas. That's right. Uh, wait, no, Surf Ninjas. So in the Surfer Samurai movie, it's like called the Red El. Yeah, Red Elvises. No, sorry, Six String Samurai. So their first release was Surfing in Siberia and then they started the movie um, Six String Samurai and also did the soundtrack. Uh, so the Red Elvises basically play a mix of surf and Russian music and they prominently feature a Contra-based balalaika, I'm pretty sure. But, you know, if that's enough talk about its time in popular culture. That will come later. What I want to talk about is first... So Brendan, what is a balalaika? Okay, so a baluleka, as you may have gathered, is a Russian stringed instrument. Well, you probably wouldn't have gathered it was stringed, but it's a member of the lute family, similar to a guitar here in the West. The difference is, and I'm going to keep referring back to the guitar because that's what most people are familiar with. Like a guitar, it has strings, it has frets, it has a hole and the body for the sound to resonate out of, but it's not shaped like a guitar. It's shaped like a triangle. Also, like a guitar, you can play it with your fingers, and the most proper traditional way to do it is stroking it with your forefinger. I'm doing a motion that you can't see because this is a podcast, but... He's stroking it all right. Stroke up and... you strum up and down with your forefinger. There's also... you can also play with a plectrum, which is a fancy way of saying a pick. And yeah, that, that basically about covers it, but we're going to still talk about it more. In addition to the guitar, it sort of resembles the violin in the violin family, like a violin, viola, double bass, and so on and so forth. So they come in a variety of shapes and sizes. The contrabass is the lowest, and it is tuned to E1, A1, and D2. And if you don't know what that means, basically a regular guitar will have an E2 as its lowest string. That's the E note of the second octave. And uh, an 88-key piano typically will go from C1 to C8, so about the lowest octave possible to, well, C8. And the, the human range of hearing is approximately C0 to C10. Beyond that point, you can't really hear anything, although C10 roughly is mostly inaudible. It may be completely inaudible
0: so what do these numbers and letters mean because for people not trained in music like me
1: okay yeah so for people not trained in music so you have the 12 tone western scale that's all the letters from a to g and in between that you have these things called sharps and flats which is basically the notes in between those it's really all there is to it i don't know i'll have to experiment that's just the name of the different pitches the number refers to the octave so there's multiple octaves of every note in the scale higher and lower and there's about 10 of those that are possible for humans to hear theoretically you could go higher but there's or lower but there's no point because it's like you can't hear it yeah so i I hope that explains it as well as i it was as bad as good as i possibly can it's it's basically so the numbers so if you said like c
0: zero i mean it's like on the zero octaves. So that's the C note, C0, right? C zero,
1: okay, so I have a chart here. I can pull it up. This is getting more into physics of sound, I guess. But if A4 is set at 440 hertz, and yes, you can tune it to different hertz, uh, C zero will be about 16, yeah, 16 hertz. And the highest this chart, so that's 16 cycles in a second, as in the, this, the wavelength of the sound. And at the top of this particular chart, I'm using is B8. That's about uh, 7,902 hertz, uh, approximately, or 7 kilohertz, in other words. Hearing all these numbers, hertz, by the way. Yeah. It. it, This is not very. (laughs) This is just some basic stuff. It really doesn't mean all that much. The point is, this is similar to the violin family because just like in the violin family, you have a contrabass. Bass, tenor, alto, piccolo. Actually, I'm not sure, but whatever. In balalaika, there's the contrabass, which is the the lowest. Then bass, which is the next highest Tenor, which is the next highest Alto, secunda, prima, and piccolo. And the contrabass is tuned to low E, which is E1. So that's the lowest string on a regular bass guitar. I'm sure many people are familiar with or have encountered a bass guitar before their lives. That is the lowest E string. Although technically, that's more properly called a contrabass guitar because it's in the contrabass range, but it's called a bass guitar. So that's tuned E1, A1, D2. And the highest is the piccolo, which is tuned B4, E5, and A5. Although there is a rare obsolete one called a discant, which is tuned even higher at E5, E5. A5. But the balalaika that you are most likely to encounter is called the Prima, which is in the soprano range, and the top two strings are both tuned to E4, and the third string is tuned to A4. And yes, they have three strings. So to put that in perspective, most guitars have their third string be D4. And also, these are typically tuned in fourths. So, on a regular guitar, it's also tuned in fourths. It's its E-A-D-G, and I am a bass guitarist, not a guitarist, so I forget the rest of the letters.
0: E-A-D-G-E-B-E. 88 Dynamite, Goodbye Eddie. I know that from learning how to play guitar, which I suck at, so I went to bass because basses are substantially better. Yes,
1: basses are better, but not any less difficult than guitar. Oh, absolutely not, but I, I can hit the strings, so yeah yeah you got you got big stubby hands meanwhile i have i have oddly delicate hands for a bassist but i have long fingers but they're thick so it's
0: like mm-hmm. I, the bass i can hit the, the bass frets pretty easily so that's why yeah. I work for the bass i mean
1: my wrists are still so and weak and wimpy that i've sustained injuries from just fretting the bass guitar but that's kind of a uh a rookie yes. move that i've yes fretting into. the bass guitar yes fretting fretting means pushing down the strings that's all yes. it is to make a note. I, I, I know. Okay, well, this is for the people at home. Okay. I was trying to make a joke. <laughs> uh, okay, anyway. Yeah, so there's the Prima Balalaika, which is the one that you are probably familiar with and the one we're probably going to be focusing the most on. But um, if you're at home, I want you to go up and look look up Contrabass Balalaika. Uh, Balalaika is spelled B A L A L A L-A-I-K-A. balalaika. Yeah, I think I got that right. Oh gosh, damn! That's massive! These things are massive. They're insanely massive. Which, you kind of have to be, because it's an acoustic contrabass instrument. If you've ever seen a uh, double bass on stage, it's the one that looks like a gigantic violin. Because, that's kind of what it is. It's a gigantic violin. To get a lower note, you have to make a physically bigger instrument. Um, there's also octobases, not balalaikas, but um, octobases in the violin family. Though the only one I know of that exists in a uh in a museum, and it's so low that it's like more or less inaudible, and it's also like barely fits into a room. Oh lordy, thick. Yeah. Uh, if you make. Acoustic instruments and lower tones—they gotta be big, or you can have thicker strings because that's usually what acoustic bass guitars do, although they are also larger. So another thing you might notice: the body of the balalaika. It's unique. It is triangular. There's a similar instrument called the dombra, which is more round, ovalish-ish, but the balalaika is triangular. I I can't imagine it makes it any less unwieldy to play but i'm sure balalaika players make it work although there's also an even smaller balalaika called a discant it's mostly um not really used anymore and it is tuned even higher in e5 e5 and a5 a lot of tiny yeah yeah if i just put these pictures up there'd just be people holding a massive
0: and a small balalaika
1: yeah, a massive balalaika and then just this tiny little baby balalaika. Child's first balalaika. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the modern balalaika. If you go out on eBay and you search balalaika for sale, you are going to find probably a prima balalaika. Any modifiers like Contrabass or Piccolo are going to probably change your results. But if you just search balalaika, you're getting a prima balalaika. So yeah, that's the standardized balalaika. The history of the balalaika is a lot more complicated than that prior to the standardization which we will get into in the first place people tuned them however they pleased you know it's it was a folk instrument nobody invented this it was just appeared and was used and the people who played it tuned them and constructed them to their personal specifications they're mostly homemade so you could have three strings. You could have four strings. You could have five. You could have two. I wouldn't be surprised if there are people out there who have who had only one string balalaikas. It's probably rare because kind of the the sound of it kind of depends on uh, that top string ringing out. But uh, actually, you know what? I think now is a perfect time to introduce what this thing even sounds like. So edited in later with the power of podcast movie magic, this is probably the most famous balalaika song, Kalinka, pulled, ripped from a random YouTube clip. That's the most famous Kalinka song. I'm pretty sure it's exactly the same as the Tetris song. No, that's like Korobarniecki. Okay. Well, it sounds very similar. But yes. So that was probably the most famous song. You may have heard it before because it's, again, extraordinarily famous Russian song. It it is so Russian. You hear it
0: everywhere.
1: Yeah. Before I I move on, Roberto, do you have any questions about the construction of the Balalaika? So what kind of wood is it made out of normally? uh, fantastic question. I don't know. My guess is probably different ways to make it these days. In the Russian, in the days before standardization, they would have been homemade. So it probably would have been whatever was lying around. You know, the, the way you construct a balalaika was you had a triangular box that you hammered together. Okay, according to the uh, Wikipedia page that I just pulled up here, yeah, spruce, evergreen, fir, and the backs are typically made of maple. So there you go. Interesting. Cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was not prepared for that question, so I had to look it up. Yeah, now you know how it feels. I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) Research is normally your job. You should be used used to research by now. I am. (laughs) That's why I'm trying to avoid all your questions. Uh, But it's still rough. Because you ask some stuff that sometimes, oh, I didn't think of that. Hmm. Oh, maybe in the future I'll just ask those questions before. Um, No, no, no.
0: no. I I like being caught on the spot. It's great.
1: Okay. So, I have another question. Yes. What about its history? Oh, well, I'm so glad you asked, Roberto. I was just about to get to that. Yeah. What about its history? So, like I said before, it's part of the loot family. And it's not exactly clear where it comes from. Um, The Washington Balalaika Society at uh, balalaika.com suggests that it was possibly of Tatar origin. However, I found an article which is an undergraduate thesis by Nicholas Chlebach at the University of Vermont goes more into depth on the scholarly scholarly debates surrounding its possible origins. In addition to Tatar origin, for example, he suggests it might be Mongolian in origin. Uh, mm. It appears nobody can agree. Speaking of a lack of agreement, it seems nobody can also agree on the origins of the word balaleka. Of course, we have to have an etymological history on this podcast. So it could come from the words balobanit, balabolit, or balagurit, all of which roughly translate to cracking jokes. Hey! Yeah, we'll get into why later. It could also mean boltat or balakat, which means chatter. Oh, they have Yes. So, put a pin on the uh, the cracking jokes one because that'll become important to the history of the balalaika later. But um, moving on. It's a Russian folk instrument. Of course, it appeared among Russian peasantry very, very early in history. I believe the sixteenth century was cited don't quote me on that um i thought i had that somewhere in my notes here
0: i think it's 17th century
1: yeah 17th century so it it came onto the scene with the russian passage russian peasantry as a folk instrument so you know people have compared it oftentimes to the banjo <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah the banjo Alabama. because it's
1: an instrument that just happens to be particularly popular in folk music and uh, all of this is according to a 2009 article by Katie Sue on the website of the Department of Russian Studies at Macalester College. And uh, throughout its history, it's something of a radical and subversive connotation because it was commonly played by traveling performers who were called skomoroks. Good pronunciation. Yeah, this is where the etymology about cracking jokes comes in because skomoroks frequently played songs that mocked Russian politics and the Orthodox Church, especially during the 17th century. This was in addition to what the Orthodoxy Church perceived as obscene behaviors, such as swearing, exposing themselves, and wearing masks. Who are these radicals and why are they around? Yeah, who, who are these dudes wearing masks? Yeah. How dare they? That's obscene. Times certainly have changed. And making fun of the Russian Orthodox Church, how dare they? So it's because of these troublemaking skomotoroks that the Orthodox Church banned instrumental music as far back as the 11th century in an effort to crack down on them, whom they called sometimes satanic or devilish. So the satanic panic of the 11th century occurred. Yeah, this is one thing that struck me as like, oh nothing changes absolutely nothing changes <laughs> and nothing ever changes every time it's always musicians who are the radicals and the subversives who get banned for uh telling funny songs that make fun of um established authority
0: this music um, does not please the lord play the holy
1: music the instrumental the yeah. acapella music of the church acapella yeah, music singing is holy instrumental music sorry that's the work of satan yep uh, agreed mm Um, so anyway, uh, Katie Sue goes on to argue that it actually kept its radical connotations from the 17th century to the 20th century in the lead up to the revolution, because it was sort of a, it was a symbol of the common man, the, the, what is it? Narodni? Narod? The people. Narodni? Yeah. Yeah. Narodni? It was a symbol of the Narodni, so to speak. Um, this was especially true because as Chilabek writes, by the 17th century, class strat- class stratification in Russia was becoming worse and worse and worse. The upper classes mostly moved on to attending and listening to Italian operas and very Western classical music, while most peasants played folk music. They just kept on playing their balalaikas and their dombras. I mean, we, l- we like our classical music here. Oh, I mean, I love classical music. Well, it depends on the classical music, but yes, it, it does bring up Something interesting because it brings up the debate. Okay, this is Western music. Sorry, but that's a Western import. That's not real Russian music. What's real? What's quintessentially Russian music? Canons. Yeah. What? Canons. True. That it is canons. Okay. So in the eighteen hundreds, there was a little movement that we call nationalism. Probably the most famous example of nationalism music comes from the operas of Richard Wagner, such as his famous Ring Cycle. If you've ever heard the musical melody, <singing> that is The Flight of the Valkyrie, and that comes from uh, Richard Wagner's Ring Cycle operas. Um, I forget which one. I think it might be uh, the Ring of the Nibelung, but I'm not sure. I have no clue. I just know that piece. Everybody knows that piece and it does it did not start with apocalypse now. What? Nope, sorry. It didn't start with apocalypse now. I am sure Wagner was around for apocalypse now. Come on. Get it right. 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 So, people around Europe became interested in the question of what is quintessentially German or Italian or English or indeed Russian. Russian nationalism was in full swing and people wanted to make Italian style operas and Western music that was still Russian. And this is where we get the modern balalaika. Like I said Woo! before previously, it was a folk instrument. There were no rules on how to make one other than being having strings and it being triangular. That's roughly about it. The number of strings, how they were tuned, what it was made of, what the strings are made of, no rules. It was free for all.
0: And of course, the bourgeoisie comes in with their capitalist notions of standardization and they got to implement a standardized balalaika. No one can have a creative form of expression. It is just
1: standardization. So everyone's the same and we can listen and do the exact same shit over and over again. I mean, yeah, basically, it's the, the reason that it was standardized is because standardized is because people wanted to make a Russian instrument, a fun, quintessentially Russian instrument. Into something respectable that the upper class would listen to—that that was it was Westernized. So, enter a guy named Vasily Vasilievich Andreev. He was a nobleman violinist who wanted to bring the balalaika to the upper classes. So the I find conflicting information on this. The Washington Balalaika Society says. The five sizes that we know them today were built by the Luthier F. Passerbsky of St. Petersburg. It won't tell me what kind of F, just F. Paserbsky. It was just Luthier press F to respect Paserbsky. Exactly, exactly. And the article I found, I think it was in Nicholas Schlebach's article, uh, mentioned the violin knicker V. Ivanov. That's it, mm. he's just V. Ivanov. I, I don't know why people can't tell me the name. The first names of these people because it's probably Vladimir Vasily or something whatever. like that yeah yeah so anyway this is the guy who gave us the modern balalaika the the prima balalaika that's this is the guy who made that he's the guy who standardized it so Again, was it Pasirbsky,
0: Andreev or Ivanov Andreev
1: Vasily Andreev. Vasilyevich Andreev he's a nobleman violinist but Pasirbski was the one who built it for him then Yes, he commissioned these. So he was a violinist who wanted to bring it to the upper classes. So he had a uh, he had balalekas made in um, the same way that violins are made, of different sizes so it could produce different tones. So Got that's it. why we have a contrabass, a bass, a tenor, an alto, secunda, prima, and piccolo balalekas. Okay. And he created a balaleka orchestra. And later, he also incorporated other Russian folk instruments, um, but we don't have time to get into that today. And the balalaika became firmly established in, firmly established in the mainstream after a successful performance for Tsar Alexander III and the rest of the imperial family. And the rest is history. Balalaika is now a quintessentially Russian instrument. The uh, Great Russian Orchestra, as it was known, led by Andreev, again made up of many different folk instruments. It performed in many different foreign countries. It performed in France. It performed in the United States. It won praise from Tychovsky, Mr. Cannonman himself. Tchaikovsky. A couple of schools of balalaika were established, and it became accepted into the mainstream. And to this day, there are still many Russian folk orchestras active. It's used in classical music, jazz, hip-hop, rock, pop, and folk music to this day and my personal favorite example of this i found is uh the russian rock band no who also incorporate another very traditional russian instrument uh folk instrument the accordion into their music and uh they have this uh song called uh cheloveki koshka which is absolutely stuck in my head as roberto knows i can't get that damn song out of my head it's too catchy it's too too sad It's too easy to sing along with. I'll stop gushing about that song now. No, you won't. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I probably will never stop talking about it. Uh, And it's playing now. It's the band that is playing now. Hopefully, Chele Vekikoshka. In uh, only 30 seconds, on. so we don't get marked by copyright. It's it's Russia. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, probably. Probably fine. Chele uh, I, I, I can't say the rest. It's in Russian. Da, 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 da. So, before we continue, I want to point out. So, the title of the... Um, undergraduate thesis by Nicholas um, Schlebach. Yeah, the title of it is The Adaptability of the Balalaika. And I could not agree with that assessment more because it, it's had different political connotations and cultural connotations throughout its history, which is actually why I think it, I love it. I love it so much. It I think it's, perfectly, it's a perfect example of what we call recuperation, which is something that was previously subversive, being absorbed into the system and intended to subvert. And it's a prime example of the balalaika right here. It's a Russian folk instrument. It's associated with the people in opposition to the upper classes, the ruling classes. And it became more quintessentially associated with the people as class stratification got worse and worse uh, in the lead up to the Russian Revolution, which is a period in history we'll cover. A very long time from now. Yeah, it's gonna be quite a while before we get there. Because once we get there, you know, we're about to be done. Yeah, we're almost. Yeah, we're almost about to be done once we get to the Russian Revolution, which is like it's. I don't know, like it's sad because probably the most well-known period in Russian history is when we're gonna be almost done. I mean, we can make it, We can make it last forever if we wanted to. Yeah, probably we could make it last forever. S- several different parts, like, you know. Yeah, like we could have like. I mean, we'll probably have to do like a like a sort of like a pope and anti pope episode of like who's the leader of the reds and the whites at like a, a different point in time and the blacks for all I know and the greens also I think there were greens I think there was a green right red, red white and greens right right yeah so anyway like I was saying it it became especially in the lead up to the Russian Revolution like I said became more fundamentally proletariat or of the proletariat so to speak um and that is something that is. Not changed since its association with uh, the subversive troublemakers Skomoroks in the 17th century. They, like I said, nothing ever changes. Um, and then, you know, it's it got taken up by um, Vasily Vasilyevich Andreev, and it got played in front of the imperial family. And suddenly it was a respectable instrument for people to listen to in the context of operas and Western style music that the upper class would go and listen listen to.
0: I, I do hope we remember this one bit of cultural information once we get to Alexander the Third.
1: Yeah, I hope so too. I'm uh, I don't know what you're referring to, but I'm sure you're gonna tell me he loved uh, Western music or something or hated it. Oh, he he, he totally loved Cellovicki Korska, you know. Yeah, yeah. He's it's a huge fan. for you. <laughs> yeah, he's a huge fan of Cellovicki Koshka. So that's why I find the history of the balalaika so fascinating. Is that there's no as much as people insist upon it there is no essence to the balalaika the balalaika is whatever you make of it for whatever political ends you want to draw it towards
0: Alrighty, that was very enlightening brendan and great job on your your
1: first lead episode hopefully you can do more in the future yeah hopefully uh, i'm still going to charge you, i'm going to charge you double though what i think you're charging me for this t- I mean, I was gonna, but I lost track of time. But so I was like, oh, whatever. I
0: didn't know you were charging me
1: for this stuff. What? What? Well, I, I really don't care. Okay. There's a true capitalist coming out of him right there. Uh, I mean, yeah. In spite of everything, I, I do have uh, a razor sharp business acumen. There we go.
0: Well, everyone, thank you so much for being our patrons. Your Your money goes to good usage. Uh, and I hope you really enjoyed this about a like episode. We
1: will be back next month with mm-hmm. Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga. He's not the boogeyman. He's the man you sent to kill the fucking boogeyman. <laughs> I hope that's the right one. Yeah, it is. I'm pretty sure that's the right quote. Uh, but anyway, um, check out, I, I, for everyone, everyone, uh, please check out the bibliography. That'll be in the notes of this episode the has the links to all the articles that i cited here make up your own mind because researching this was hard and also they're really really interesting to read especially um the adaptability of the balaleka so that's my last word on it oh well second to be last word roberto and that's a from me and from me that is a diet parasitov. see you next time see you next time
0: Kalinka maya vsaduyagoda malinka malinka maya ey kalinka 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 maya